Well, good morning and welcome. As you're very likely aware, Pastor Walden is at Grace Baptist Church in Canton, Michigan this morning and uh, ministering the Word of God to the people of our sister church there. And so we're grateful to God to have with us today Pastor Gordon Cook from Grace Baptist there in Canton, and he'll be opening the Word of God uh, and ministering to us later in the service as well as in the afternoon service at 1.45. So, Pastor Cook, we extend a warm welcome to you with thanksgiving for your willingness to come. If you are visiting, we're glad you're here, and we ask that you would please sign the guest registry back near the entrance. We have a record of your attendance. And there are uh, several important announcements. Uh, announcements on the back of the bulletin you'll want to take note of, so be sure to uh, look all those over. I'll just mention a few. Our regular uh, weekly prayer meeting is this Wednesday at uh, 7 p.m. on Zoom, so you want to uh, be on that. Also, one week from today, Lord willing, uh, Pastor Bala from the Sovereign Grace Church in Auckland, New Zealand, will be with us in the afternoon service. Also, there's a current budget report on the back table. Please see one of the deacons if you have any questions about that. And there's information. Uh, I see there's also a poster on the back door. Uh, information there in the bulletin about the ladies' conference taking place next month at Grace Baptist Church in Canton. And there are others uh, there that I didn't mention, so be sure to look uh, over all the rest. Psalm 122 is a song of ascents. And you'll remember that the songs of ascents are those 15 psalms from 120 to 135 that were sung by the people of Israel as they were on their pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimages, various ones up to Jerusalem uh, for one of the holy feasts. And Psalm 122 is one of four that were written by King David, and it begins... Verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. In David Guzik's commentary, he brings out several things to take note of here in verse 1. He says, David has in mind here both the individual, I was glad, and the believing community, when they said unto me. And the Bible says that he was glad. Some of the translations use the word rejoiced. Coming into God's house made David happy. And it was a tabernacle. uh, There was no temple, although he may have anticipated when the temple would be built under Solomon. But even knowing that no building could contain God in all his glory and greatness, yet at the house of the Lord he could focus his thoughts, prayers, worship, and receiving of God's word, the community of God's people in a special way, and David was glad for that. And the point is, yes, we love each other. The fellowship is sweet. But we are glad, we rejoice, because we, like David, are here for our God, because of our God. So perhaps we would read Psalm 122, verse 1, with some emphasis. I was glad 
when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of Yahweh. So let's take these moments to prepare our hearts to worship our great God as we ought. The call to worship is in your bulletin, and you'll see it's a responsive reading of Psalm 150. So let's stand, if you're able, and call one another to worship as we read it responsibly. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise the Lord. Now let's take our Trinity hymnals. And turn to number 69. Number 69 in the Trinity. Lord, with glowing heart, I praise thee.
pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you, we worship you, we give you praise, for you are Yahweh, the great I Am. There is no God besides you, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except you. You declare the end from the beginning. You are in the heavens and you do whatever you please. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we thank you that in your great mercy, you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, to die the death we sinners deserved, that we who were slaves to sin by true faith in him would be made free indeed. And we thank you for the promise that your word will not return to you empty, but will accomplish your purpose for which you sent it. So we pray you would use your servant this hour to proclaim your word with clarity and power and accuracy, so your people will be spiritually fed and nourished. And may any who are here among us who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, hear and heed your word and turn to you and be saved. And forbid it, Father, we pray that any of us merely honor you with our lips, but have hearts that are far from you. Grant that our worship will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's turn to uh, number 35 in the Hymns of Grace. Hymns of Grace, number 35. O great God.
Well, our consecutive reading through the New Testament today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8, and we're beginning at verse 31. And when Brother Ken read the first half of chapter 8 last week, he ended at verse 30, which said, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And now today, as we read to the end of chapter 8, we may be wondering how it is that these whom the Apostle says came to believe in him could have said what they said to the Lord Jesus and at the end picked up stones to kill him. And Blue Letter Bible is helpful, and there were two sermons I found on this passage that were in agreement that there's a distinction between the terms John uses in verses 30 and 31. One of those sermons was by Charles Spurgeon, and here's an excerpt of what he said about it. Quote, these believers were not all of one kind. Let that stand as our first observation upon the text. Our Lord had different kinds of believers around him. There were two sorts of believers, evidently, who may be set forth to you by the differing expressions used in the Revised Version. We read in verse 30, many believed on him. And then in the 31st verse, we read of those Jews which had believed him. Mark the distinction between believed on him and had believed him. The omission of the word on or in is a happy one because it is exactly accurate and it helps to bring out an important distinction while it also accounts for what seems so strange that those who had believed in him should almost immediately after charge him with being a Samaritan and having a devil and should even take up stones to stone him. There were two sorts of believers, and on these I will speak a while. Close quote. And I would commend the entire sermon as very worthwhile reading because he also brings out another point that might be easy to miss. I missed it. Um, namely, the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus toward these who had believed him. As, as Mr. Spurgeon says, it is the way of our compassionate Lord not to quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. Even those who, as we read, just see how they treated him. Even these, he's showing compassion to. In his compassion, the Lord Jesus gave them a test of their belief. That, And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, hear now the word of the living and true God. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, 
which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. You, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Brother Dale, come and lead us in prayer. We'll be remembering the church in SeaTac this morning with Pastors Price, Velas, and Dove. Um, they have been without a teaching elder there for, I think I heard, eight years. It might be longer than that. And uh, pa- Pastor Dove has been sent there, um, called there, and he uh, is starting like an internship among them. And what a great blessing that is to have a a man of God who can open up God's word and faithfully proclaim it to that assembly. So let's remember them this morning. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have provided a a man, that uh, a servant of the Most High who can go and we pray that he will rightly divide the word of truth among those brethren there and that it will be tremendous blessing to your people. Um, We ask that you would give them faithful hearts towards you and towards him and that they would care for this man and that he would be faithful and true to you. And what we pray for them, we pray for ourselves also. We 
Pray that our pastor today would open up uh, the Word of God and speak faithfully to the brethren in Canton. And we thank you for the servant that you have sent to us. We pray that as the book of eternal words are opened here among us, that you would um, teach us from it, open our hearts to receive your word, dear God. Strengthen this man. We thank you for him and that he would be faithful to you and come and meet with us. Even though we are small this, in numbers this morning, yet there's a sense of our worship is um, the angels peer in and, and observe and worship with us as we worship you. And we, we thank you for that, dear God. Um, help us to be serious in our singing, praying, and, and listening today. And for Pastor Cook, his preaching. Come among us. We need you, Lord Jesus. Uh, build us up and give us strength to go out and to serve you this week. In your blessed name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now before uh, Pastor Cook comes to open the word, let's turn again to uh, into the hymns of grace and number 365, ancient words. Hymns of grace, number 365.
from Grace Baptist Church of Canton, Michigan. Always a privilege to be here and see you face to face and open up the Word of God. The text of Scripture I want us to consider this morning is from Romans chapter 8, that great chapter. Some think it's the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. I've been preaching through the book of Romans and just came to the back end of Romans 13. But as reflecting upon what I might bring, I was tempted to bring what I brought a couple of weeks ago from Romans 13. But this passage of Scripture has come to my mind, and so I want to give again exposition of it this morning. Romans 8, verse 18, that's where we want to begin. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Well, let's again look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we again are thankful that we have you as a father, a perfect father, a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And we are reminded every day that we live upon planet Earth, that we are dependent upon your gift giving, the gifts of your spirit, the gift of your son, the gift of grace upon grace. So give us the grace that we need in this next hour. Give us the ears that we need to hear your word. And give us a heart that desires to obey you and live out what we hear. So come by your Holy Spirit, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. It was a popular Movie, Maybe some of you watch it rather regularly. It's played every year around Christmas time. It stars Jimmy Stewart. It's called The Wonderful Life. And listen, if you are a Christian, you are living the wonderful life. The best and the fullest sense of that word, wonderful. Remember how Jesus starts off that great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, He starts off with that word blessed, and he uses it nine times. We are the most blessed people on planet Earth. Now, we don't always think that way or feel that way, but that is reality. But one of the reasons why we don't is because we are often inundated with sorrow, pain, and suffering. And we will all of our lives. But what we can't forget is what we once were. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. We were under divine wrath, but no, not anymore. And thankfully, God in his grace came to us. He rescued us by his son Jesus and delivered us from its condemnation, from its power and dominion. And God, again, in his mercy, gave us his Holy Spirit, who now indwells in the heart of every true believer. And here in Romans 8, Paul opens up even that great doctrine, you could say, of the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Spirit 
16 times in this one chapter. And Romans 8 describes the multifaceted work of the Holy Spirit that operates in our lives day after day. He tells us that we are to enjoy an ongoing victory and defeat of sin, Romans 8.13. We are putting sin to death by the Spirit, and that should never cease to amaze us. But we also hear we are identified as the sons of God. Romans 8, verse 15, notice, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now let me say, that does sound like the wonderful life. But as wonderful as it is, we never escape struggles with sin. We never escape pain and suffering. That's because there's a devil in the world. That's because the world is what it is and because of our remaining sin. And notice that Paul wants us to understand suffering in this blessed chapter. He picks up a very strong word. If you look at verse 15, it's the word cry. It's the Greek word klebzo. It's an intense cry. It's a cry of distress. You could illustrate it by that little boy who comes running through the door and he's fallen in the mud or uh, knocked his head against uh, the side of the garage or the side of the car and he's coming through the door with a bloody nose, a few scrapes and bruises. He runs to his father and says, Abba, Daddy, I need help. And the Apostle Paul makes it plain here that that is part and parcel of the Christian life. That is normative Christian experience. Romans 8.18, we will suffer with him. Even in the midst of suffering, he wants us to look at it positively because here's what he does. He picks up, you could say, the prophetic telescope and tells us that these present sufferings, verse 18, don't compare with the hope of glory. He doesn't want us to lose sight of eternity. He doesn't want us to lose sight of the hope to come. And just like we suffer and have the hope of glory, so does, listen, so does this present material created world that we call creation. He focuses upon that in verses 19 through 23. He picks up that word, creation, five times. Verse 19, verse 20, 21, 22, and 23. And he uses that word creation to capture Almost everything that we can think of, everything material, everything physical, everything that we touch, everything we see, everything we hear in this present world. He wants us to know the everything of creation, everything that God made, will one be glorified, one day glorified, perfected, and redeemed. Let me try and explain what he really wants us to know here about creation. I'm going to use three time zones or three time frames. Past, present, 
and future. The world or the creation that was past, it was a good creation. The world or the creation that is, it is a fallen creation. And the world or the creation that will be, it will be a new creation. That's where we want to go. That's the the broad outline in terms of this major principle, the world or the creation that was, that is, and that will be. So let's begin with the first, the world or the creation that was. It was a good creation. If you're a Christian, you have what we sometimes call a distinctive worldview. It starts with God, and it's easy to see as soon as you open your Bible, you stare in the face of a supernatural, eternal being called God. The very first words in our Bible, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And the story of Genesis is about beginnings. Everything has a beginning except God. God has always been there. God will always be there. He's from everlasting to everlasting God. And it's safe to say that Paul, when he writes Romans 8, speaking right in this context of Romans 8, wants us to remember Genesis. He wants us to remember the story of beginnings. The story of creation has tremendous profound implications when it comes to how you live in the here and now, how you think about God, And how you think about yourself. One of my most favorite quotes comes from the pen of John Kelvin. He said this. You will never understand yourself until you first look into the face of God. You will never understand yourself until you first look into the face of God. And that explains, does it not, why the world we live in is so confused, so bewildered about who they are, why they are here. We are seen in a way we've never seen before in all the years of American civilization, what you could call a crisis of identity. The doctrine of creation, just as the doctrine of salvation, is essential to know who God is, but also to know who you are. Contrary uh, to public opinion and to the evolutionary mindset, you are not a wild animal. You did not come from a speck of nothingness or live in a world of meaninglessness. No, you were made by God. With intention, purpose, we were made to glorify God. But it seems, at least in my experience, that almost, I don't watch movies very often, very rarely, but almost every movie, you read anything about the new movies, magazine articles, Instagram accounts, you can almost get the sense that now people think they can create themselves. Someone has called it the plastic self.
I can be whoever I want to be and do whatever I want to do. I'm only answerable to myself. Our world has been so secularized and brainwashed by evolution. I think it's the biggest lie of the devil. And the world, for the most part, has swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. The world's approach to understanding and finding answers to who you are and why you are here is totally at odds with the Bible and the story of creation. And here's the very first thing we learn from Genesis 1.1. God is the exclusive author of creation. If you look through all of the verbs of Genesis 1, all of the verbs or action words, guess who's behind every one of them? God. No one else is speaking. No one else is acting. God does everything. He made every atom. He made every bird, every tree, every fish by simply speaking and bringing all things into existence by what theologians call his creative fiat. You also see this in the creation story. Just run down to that first chapter. The word good punctuates the whole story. At least eight times we read the words, God saw it was good. And that word good means that everything he made was perfect, it was flawless, nothing wrong, no flaws, no aberrations. And one final thing you and I should know about creation as far as the big time frame in terms of the first major time frame is that all things were made for the ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things for your pleasure. They are created and were created. Jonathan Edwards, considered to be the, the greatest American theologian, says, The whole of creation preaches God is the maker of the world. That's the way it was. A pristine creation. A beautiful creation. Everything in harmony. Everything perfectly balanced. Everything working the way it was supposed to work. But something happened. You all know the story, I'm sure. Something terrible. Something we could call the tragedy of tragedies. Man sinned, man rebelled against God. Genesis chapter 3 is also part of the Christian worldview and should shape our understanding of who we are in terms of how we live. And in Romans 8, Paul wants to tell us that the creation suffered from the bomb blast of the fall. That brings us to our second point. Creation passed. The good creation, but now secondly, creation present, the fallen creation. Creation present, the fallen creation. Romans 8, creation is personified. That that simply means it, it is made out to be like a person. 
It's given human affections, emotions, longings. Uh, So you could call it Mr. Creation or Mrs. Creation, we might say. And we know from just what we observe in everyday life, Mr. or Mrs. Creation is not in great shape. Creation is like a, a person who has serious heart problems, respiratory problems, a few crippling diseases. Creation can't function normally. And it's not the fault of creation. Creation is a victim, not the culprit. The fall lies with man's original sin, but also the righteous determination and the just decree of God. God purposely and intentionally curses the world. Revelation, or sorry, Romans 8 verse 20, look at the text. For the creation was subjected, not willingly, but because of him. Who subjected it? There's a question among the commentators. I don't think it's that difficult. God did. Not the devil. Not men. God did. God alone has the right and the power to condemn all creation to frustration, futility because of human sin. And that corresponds, does it not, exactly with Genesis chapter 3. Remember what God said to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground. Now that might not sit all that well with the extreme environmentalists or the save the planet activists. But here's the truth that few people want to face. Just like man can't save himself, he can't save the planet. We stand on cursed ground. And to understand what that really means, notice what Paul goes on to say. He picks up three negative words to describe the problem of the present creation of the fallen or broken world that we live in. Verse 20, he uses the the word futility or frustration. It's a word that's used 28 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's translated vanity of vanities, Ecclesiastes. We all know something, don't we not, of the frustration or the futility of living in this present world that is under the curse of God. Just try and plant a home garden. Right? How long does it take for the weeds? Just go on a camping trip. Growing up, we grew up in Canada. Nice place to go camping, but, I mean... So many mosquitoes that they can carry you away. Cook a batch of cookies and the first batch comes out great, but the second batch is burnt and you're not quite sure why. Frustration galore. Every day you feel it. Traffic delays and bad weather and computer glitches. And just like we get frustrated when it comes to normal everyday life, the Apostle Paul says the created order has its own frustration. 
C.S. Lewis wonderfully illustrates that in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Remember the story? Narnia was under the power of the wicked witch of the north. The land was in a state of perpetual winter. Spring never came, not until Aslan dies and rose again. And that's a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. But once that happened, the ice began to melt. And flowers began to bloom. And the trees began to turn to green. This present cosmos is in a perpetual state of frustration, a state of winter. She can't be all she wants to be or all that God intended for her to be. Creations like the Olympic runner running at breakneck speed. That, that's in its original state. It was, it was in prime shape. Everything was functioning the way it was supposed to function. Every muscle was well-toned and worked in perfect rhythm. But today's creation is more like one of those war vets suffering from an explosion of a roadside bomb and the face is scarred. He has problems hearing from his left ear and everywhere he goes there's a noticeable limp. Creation can't see or hear or walk the way it used to walk. There's a level of frustration. That's the first word he uses. Second, notice the next description of fallen creation. It's that of bondage. Verse 1. Or verse 21, there's a sense of slavery with respect to creation. And creation is powerless to do anything about it. Every day creation, you could say, is like a slave in shackles and chains. Animals can't stop from dying. Trees can't stop their leaves from withering. Termites. Wind blows off branches and amputates them. The third thing we can say about creation, verse 22, is that it groans. And again, he's describing creation in figurative language. Creation is weeping and sorrowing and pain. Have you ever thought of Creation as weeping and sorrowing, it's easy to see, is it not? Decay, dissolution, death, even destruction. We have hurricanes, we have floods, we have tornadoes. Creation is under a lot of stress, pressure. The weather is unpredictable, chaotic. Even the scientific world acknowledges the decay and the breakdown. They have a word for that. It's called thermodynamics. Scientists know the world is on a downward trend. And they can't stop it. And yes, man has responsibility. Man hasn't always taken proper care of the trees and the water and the animals. We've poisoned the water. We've wantonly slaughtered different animal species to extinction. We've destroyed whole forests without any thought of reforestation. But even without man in the picture, nature itself, nature itself has a built-in destructive decay mechanism. 
In the beginning, flowers didn't die. Sparrows didn't fall from trees. Wind didn't gnarl those oak trees. Oceans didn't roar or threaten to flood. The original earth was very good. It was designed to be that way. Everything, again, worked in perfect sync. Nothing broken, nothing dislocated, no death, no pain, but no longer... Creation is frustrated in bondage and it grows. The creation of the past was a good creation. Creation of the present is a fallen creation. And then thirdly, creation that will be, it will be a perfect creation. Romans 8 is A wonderful chapter, I started off saying it's probably the greatest chapter, at least in the book of Romans, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible. Some have even said that. It has a wonderful, encouraging motif. Overall, it is flavored with positives. But even when talking here about suffering, you'll notice that he doesn't end with the negative. Paul wants us to know that we are going to suffer in this present world, that creation is plagued with futility, but the purpose here is not to depress us or or send us into a dizzy of worry and anxiety. No, the end game here is to encourage us and to get us thinking about the world to come. Future glory. And even though this world is broken and scarred and fractured, Paul wants us to know that there's a better day Coming. Look more closely at verse 19. This is a picture of creation. And it's not with his head hanging down, slumped, shoulders, wringing its hands in despair. Notice the word he uses here for the creation waits. It waits with eager longing or expectation. He picks up a word here that is only used, I think, twice in the Bible as a whole. It has the idea of someone standing on their tiptoes, anticipating, looking, waiting. It's sort of like you've seen those folks. Maybe some of you were also part of that whole uh, audience when, uh, what was the last uh, royal funeral? Oh, sorry, wedding. There was a funeral. I'm thinking of the wedding. How many people watched? 1.9 billion. I mean, I mean, there were people in Britain who actually, what, camped out. I mean, they wanted to be there. They wanted to see the bride. They wanted to see the groom. They got pretty excited. You could say they were full of expectation. There was an eager anticipation. But here Paul is telling us that there will be a greater unveiling, a far more glorious unveiling of the bride and the bridegroom. And here the bride is identified as the children of God or the sons of God. And look, all of creation, all of creation is eagerly waiting for the day of the revealing of the sons. It's really not about creation, it's about us. 
Creation can't wait to see the unveiling of the sons of God. Verse 19, that means the stars and the trees and the planets and the flowers, the birds and the, all the animals are waiting for this glorious day of revelation. When we, the sons of God, will be glorified and made perfect, and so will creation. You see, just as creation shared in the fall and the curse, decay and death, it will share in the glory of the consummation, the final day of glory when Jesus comes back again for his bride. Creation will become a new creation. You've probably seen that in your Bible. The Bible uses that word new. New song, new wine, new covenant, new commandment, new man, new creation. Isaiah the prophet, more than any other of the prophets, talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And even the New Testament apostles saw something of the new earth when they peered through that prophetic telescope. Peter tells us in Second Peter 3, in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Righteous. And then the Apostle John in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. You see, that's why this old earth is groaning. Now let me explain the groaning. It, the groaning of creation is not a bad groaning. It's a good groaning. These are not the groans of an old man on his deathbed, but the groanings of a pregnant woman anticipating her baby. Creation is likened to a pregnant mother. Paul takes us, you could say, into the birthing room or the maternity ward. Creation is groaning by way of labor, pain, travail. That's why it might be even legitimate to say Mother Nature. Mother Nature is suffering birth pains. And while that pain and suffering is real, every mother, every mother on the other side of those labor pains is enjoying, is experiencing exquisite joy when that baby arrives. And there's no one happier than mom who holds that baby in her arms and at her breast. Have you ever thought about creation in that way? Maybe, maybe we're far more materialistic than we think. The woman in travail anticipating her baby. Have you ever thought of the new earth as a new physical earth? When you think of the new heavens and the new earth, we, we can tend to over-spiritualize what that will be like, what sitting on clouds and playing harps and talking to angels. 
But, but Paul's not talking like that here. He's talking in physical terms, a new earth. There's an entire physical universe that came under the curse because of Satan's seduction of Adam and Eve, and it's not going to be thrown into the garbage dump or burned up into a black charcoal crisp of uselessness or nothingness. No, it's going to be re- uh, renovated, renewed. Jesus even uses the term regenerated. You would ask the question, what will that be like? I think we could say this much. It will be an earth, a physical earth, far better, far more beautiful, far more glorious than the present earth. There's a lot of beauty in the present earth. Beautiful sunsets. Beautiful ocean, birds and flowers, but it's not what it once was, and it's not what it will be. It will be breathtaking, it will be captivating to all our senses 24-7, incredibly beautiful. It will be made, this present world, it will make this present world look like Dullsville, and we will enjoy it with new bodies resurrected bodies and perfect soul. We will enjoy that new creation in ways we could never ever have enjoyed it in this present age because of our own sin problems. The new earth will have no pain, no scars, no crippling effects. I I drive a pretty old car. We, We won't take a donation today, but it's over 20 years old. Well, when I bought it, this was my rationale. It was a Saturn view. It has polymer panels. They don't rust. It has a Honda engine. I said, this car's going to last longer than I am. It, it, it might come true. It's a 20-year-old, but, but it's got some problems. A lot of wind noise. There's a torn upholstery. There's Nixon scratches all over that car. I, I can't even lift up the roof without, without the back hatchet without it coming down on me. I have to use a stick to hold it up. It, it's, it's old. It's full of squeaks. When, when you drive down the highway, sometimes you can hear the muffler. Times I've even smelled some fumes. But when you get a new car, What a difference. When you get one of those cars that we drove down to the conference, Pastor Kel and I, I mean, it, it was tough. It was a Ford, but it was still pretty good. It had nice seats. It had comfortable adjustments for the air conditioning. I think it had heated seats. Some cars now, you have heated steering wheels. I mean, you don't even have to put your foot on the brake. It stops. It, it slows down automatically. It's still a car, right? My car's a car. You're not going to deny it. You're not going to take that away from me. It's still a car. But it's not a new car. And the new earth is still the earth. It's not the old earth. It doesn't have a scratches. It, it doesn't have any malfunctions. It's a new earth, but it's still the earth. But everything will be new. 
Nothing subject to death, decay. You'll not find one dead rabbit on the road. You'll never hear a windstorm that will frighten you. No falling stars, no black holes. No more groaning. Creation will sing in a way it never has sung before. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the field exult in everything. Let all the trees of the forest sing. The whole of creation will be singing. Every creature, every bird, every, every fish, every, every flower will serve its purpose. As we as image bearers will, will be now actively engaged in working and subduing the new earth and, and fulfilling that initial creation mandate. Uh, we will fulfill that in, in amazing ways. We were made from the ground. We were made to stand on the ground. We were made to till the ground. This new world will be perfect for the, the new man in Christ Jesus. And all of us will be scientists and, and engineers and astronomers enjoying and loving the world with no sweat or on our brow, nor thorns or thistles, no, no frustration. What a, what a world it will be. What a glorious place. Sounds like a, a fairy tale. Sounds a little far-fetched, if you ask me. Well, if that's how you think and believe, I feel sorry for you. You have no hope. That's the Christian hope. You're going to miss out if you're not a Christian. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was thinking of the future. The perfect earth. That new earth. And to be a son of God, you have to believe on the son of God. And here's the good news. If you are a son of God, you will inherit the earth. Adam, you could say lost paradise. In Christ, paradise is gained back. Everything will be recovered. Redeemed. Renewed because of Christ, his cross, his death, and resurrection. And the most wonderful thing about the new heavens and the new earth, well, a couple of things. Certainly this is most, every flower, every tree, every animal will broadcast in a way that it couldn't broadcast in this present day God's glory, God's goodness, God's wisdom. God's power. It will broadcast that in a, a megaphone kind of a way. There will be no fuzziness, no blurred picture, no muffled voices. You will see, you will hear loud and clear from every animal, every tree, every star. To him be the glory for the great things he has done. That's part of the hope. That's part of the hope. Are you waiting? Eagerly waiting? When's the last time you said, Come, Lord Jesus, come? When's the last time you pulled out your 
prophetic telescope and look forward to the day when Jesus will come back again. Only the Christian again has that hope. Only the Christian can live in light of that triumphant day when Jesus Christ comes back again. And here's the most glorious thing. We will see him face to face. And when we see him, we will become perfect like him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a comforting word, also an encouraging word. But help us, Lord, to live in light of that future day, not only the day of resurrection, but the day of consummation, when you will come back again and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We pray, Lord, that that would be a hope that we would continue to develop and maintain. Help us to think more of that future day. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, now let's turn in the Trinity hymnal as our hymn of response to the preaching of the Word of God to number 456. Number 456 in the Trinity. And may this truly be our prayer to God as we conclude the service. Number 456 in the Trinity. Let's stand, please.
We are having lunch downstairs and afterwards returning here at about 1.45 for the afternoon service and Pastor Cook will be here again with us. You are dismissed.